So, First Peter has been um, amazingly applicable, hasn't it? And I think one of the things to note just in terms of an overarching theme is that Peter's answer or his biggest concern when the church is struggling and scattered and being mistreated and persecuted and life is hard, his biggest concern is to tell them who they are. His biggest concern is that they will forget who they are because of where they are and what's happening to them. And that's, again, the theme this morning. Peter follows this pattern of saying, hey, this is who you are, church. You're a church. And this is what that means. And then he says, therefore, or in light of that, live this way. Treat each other this way. Act this way. This is what churches and Christians act like. And that's kind of the pattern here we'll see over and over again. And so we begin that same pattern here in 1 Peter chapter 2. So I'm just going to read this whole section, 4 through 10, and then we'll talk about it, okay? He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." All right, so for you theology nerds like me, you might have noticed in, at the end of verse 8, he says, as they were destined to do, and you're probably wondering, what is he going to say about that? Nothing. I'm saying nothing about it. It's not the point of the text, and I don't have time. I have like 20 minutes. What do you want from me? All right? I'm, not gonna, I'm just not going to talk about it. We'll talk about that some other day. All right? Predestination and all that. What is that about? Okay? That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is this is a metaphor that Peter is using of a stone, which is a common metaphor throughout the Old Testament. In fact, he quotes the two biggies right here in his sermon, all right? Just like many things Peter says, this thought does not originate with him. It originated with Jesus, who applied this stone imagery to himself in Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said, I am that stone that Isaiah prophesied about. So the temple, let me explain this to you, because I don't know how many ancient Near East stonemasons we have in the crowd this morning. Probably not many, all right? Let me explain to you this picture, because it's really important. The temple in ancient Israel was a structure built to exemplify holiness because it was the dwelling place of the presence of God. And this is the picture he's drawing for us. This would have been really super familiar to everybody he was talking to. And interestingly, most of the people Peter's writing to 
are in exile away, far away from the temple. And so just bringing up this image would have been like, like me, you know, when I lived overseas for a while, all I wanted was a cheeseburger. And there were no cheese, there were cheeseburgers to be found, but they weren't really cheeseburgers. There was like a pretend cheeseburger, the British version of a cheeseburger, which is just, it's unpleasant. I'm sorry if anyone from Britain is watching. You know I'm right, right? And, and just somebody talking about a cheeseburger would make my mouth water and make me homesick. And this is, this is part of what Peter's doing. He's calling up this very familiar home imagery for these people and saying, remember the temple? Remember the way it was built and what it looked like? These people would have passed it every day. And so Peter brings up this image and says, most of the structures of this day were made of stone, and the temple was no exception, okay? There wasn't a lot of wood to be had like we have here. The first stone to be laid was called the cornerstone, okay? And so the cornerstone was large, and it was specially selected by the, stone, the chief stonemason who would make sure it was shaped square, and it was big, and it was strong, and they could lay it in exactly the right spot because every other stone would be laid in relation to that cornerstone. So if the cornerstone was off by just a little bit, the whole entire structure would be off. So the cornerstone is a big deal. And it took a lot of expertise and care to find the right one. It was larger and carefully picked and honed by these stone masons, and it was placed very carefully in exactly the right place. The cornerstone defined the placement, the purpose, the role, and importance of every other stone in the entire structure, okay? You're starting to see how this metaphor points to Jesus, right? So Peter had already heard Jesus apply this idea to himself, calling Jesus called himself the cornerstone, and Peter's just developing that idea further, which is what Peter likes to do. He talks about being born again. It was another idea that Jesus brought up and Peter developed. Peter sees Jesus as the stone that men rejected, but was honored and chosen by God to be the chief cornerstone of this new living temple. So man said, that's not a good cornerstone. Get it out of here. But the father, the real mason, the real stonemason, the chief of all stonemasons, the chief builder, picked out Jesus as the cornerstone and honored him in that way. And we are the rest of the living stones laid in perfect orientation to that cornerstone. We're not dead stones. Peter says you're living stones. This is the new dwelling place for the presence of God. God chose to dwell in the temple for a season, but his ultimate goal was not to stay in those four walls. His ultimate goal was to move into his people and make them a living, breathing temple of his presence. And then Peter shifts that metaphor and says that we're not only the stones, Peter likes, he's mixing his metaphors, which I was an English teacher, makes me a little crazy, but it's all right, Peter, it's a good point, all right? He mixes his metaphors, because first, you're the stones in the wall, and now, now you're the priest in the temple, okay? A royal priesthood, kingly priesthood. You're going, I don't, I didn't have great parents. Or you think, I didn't come from good stock. 
or you think I was born in the wrong place or the wrong color or without enough this or enough that. But when you come into the kingdom of God, you were made into a royal. You hear that? That's your identity changing. Your identity and your descendancy changes because now your forefathers are not earthly forefathers. Your forefather is Jesus himself. Okay, so you become a royal priesthood. What are the priests? What did they do? The priests carried out the sacrifices, the prayers, and the worship in the temple. They were the attendants to the presence of God, attending to his presence day in and day out, every hour of the day. Jesus is the high priest. That's what Hebrews tells us. And we are under him doing the work in the temple, the work of the temple, attending to the presence of God and attending and preserving the worship. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you are a member of this royal priesthood, you have been ordained into Jesus' priesthood. You have been commissioned by Jesus to do the priestly work of sacrifice, prayer, and worship. This temple of the Holy Spirit is not a building. It is the people of God. I was really hoping that this sermon would be outside and not inside. It looked sketchy earlier this week. I was like, oh, I don't want to have to preach a sermon about how the church is not a building inside of a building. That would be lame, all right? This is great. It's a prophetic point. At least I'm saying it is. This temple of the Holy Spirit is not a building. It is the people of God. That's you, by the way. So wherever you go, you bring the presence with you. And it is no less the presence of God than the presence of God that was in the Holy of Holies in those days. The presence of God that was so fearful and so intense that they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle when he went in there because he might die. That same presence at the same level is in you, each one of you. That's amazing. That's hard to get my head around. You are a priest in your neighborhood. You are a priest in your city. You are a priest in your workplace, and you are a priest in your home. Everywhere your foot lands, you have the authority to be a priest of the presence of God in that place, to lead worship in that place, to bring the presence of God to that place, to make it holy and sanctified and set apart unto God. Wherever you go as a Christian, it has been set apart by your presence being there, not because of your awesomeness or because you know what to say or you got the gifts or you got the plan or you have wisdom from God about what to do. The reason it is made holy is because of what's in you. What made the temple important was not the walls or the decorations. It was the presence of God. It wasn't a temple until the presence of God was there. He's the one that defined it. Israel's just talking about the food ministry. That's all we're trying to do. Right? That's all we're, we're just trying to be priests of the presence of God everywhere we go. It's not complicated. It's also not easy, but it's not complicated. I was thinking about 
Stephen, the, the deacon who was full of the Holy Spirit. If you go back and read Acts 7, that's a good homework this week. It's another one I just can't get into without because it takes too long. But Acts 7 tells the story of Stephen, who was a deacon, and it says he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was, he was causing trouble. He was stirring up trouble, talking about Jesus all the time, and he had all this power flowing through him, and stuff was happening, and he was saying stuff. He was saying important stuff about how exactly what I'm saying to you, which is he's, God's not in that building anymore. He's in us, the church now. And what he said was, he said, he said to the false priests of his day, God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. And what did they do that was so radical and so crazy to them that they stoned him? Just like Jesus, they killed him. This is no small thing, even though we say it and believe it now like it's a part of our DNA, and it is, but it's radical. So in this one metaphor, Peter gives us the basis for three things, our unity, our significance, and our purpose as believers. And he's very clear this is only applicable to those who are followers of Christ. If you are not a believer, you do not get this, okay? It's as if the stone defines your purpose and your reason for being and gives you life, but if you reject the stone, you get the stone on top of you, right? So what do I mean by unity? There is one temple, and what makes it a temple is the presence of God. There are not multiple temples all worshiping God in their own way. God sees one temple of the Holy Spirit. God sees one church. We are just one section of the wall. So when you read this, I think it's important, especially these days, to remember Living Hope Church is not the whole temple. We're not the whole thing. We don't have all the things. We're like one little section, one little section, one little corner I mean, we're a pretty cool corner of the temple, right? I mean, I'm pleased with our corner of the temple. It's nice. I like it here. It's cozy. I got my, my recliner over there and my Bible, a little table with a nice lamp, not too bright, not too dim. Maybe some worship music playing in the background. That's my, our corner of the temple. But we're not the whole thing. There are other churches, Right? There are other awesome churches. I mean, you don't have to look past Kernersville. There's a ton of awesome churches in this city, each one making up, taking up their place, their section of the wall of this great church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. From God's perspective, we are not trying to achieve unity. We already are unified in Christ. You need to hear that. We're not trying to get unified. We already are. God says, you are. This is what you are. You can't not be, okay? Because Jesus died for it. And it is in his death and resurrection that we were unified in Christ. All we're trying to do now is act like it. We're just trying to be ourselves, our real selves, not our old selves. 
We act unified because we already are unified in Christ. It's really important that we get that. You don't try to be the church you just are because he says you are. What do I mean by significance? We are set apart for God's dwelling place. He has made his home among us, among you. The presence of God made the physical temple the most important and prominent structure in Israel, and I would say at the time, in the world. Why? Because of the artistry that was used to build it? No, it was just because God was there. Wherever God is, that's the most important thing, <laughs> right? The presence of God among his people imbues us with an inexpressible significance. Not just Living Hope Church, but the one church around the world throughout all of time. It is inexpressible how big of a deal it is. Why? Because we're amazing? We always do the right thing? No. Because we never sin? No. Because we always act right? No. It's just because God is there. Think about how significant that is. God could have dwelled anywhere among any people in any place he wanted to dwell. And he looked at you and me and the church down the street, and he said, I'm going to hang out there. Not just for a while, but forever. Forever. <laughs> it's a big choice. I felt like marriage was kind of a big decision, and that's for life. God said, I'm going to be among you forever, warts and all. It's amazing. What do I mean, do I mean by purpose? The purpose of each individual believer cannot be realized apart from the community of faith to which they belong. A stone on its own is not enough to build the entire structure. It's not. It's only when the stone is laid next to another, positioned correctly in relation to the cornerstone, that it finds its purpose. If you think you can find that by yourself, you cannot. It's a fool's errand to try to figure out your purpose in life and your calling and your reason for getting up in the morning by yourself. You can't do it. One cannot be a priest without a temple in which to perform the priestly duties, to put it another way. This is one of my big concerns during this pandemic is that the tendency in every human heart to think that what I just said is not true, that on your own, you can, I, I, I can do this. I don't need the church. I don't need people. I can just hang out here in my living room, just me and Jesus. And listen, you and Jesus can certainly hang out in your living room, but what you can't do in your living room by yourself is receive from Jesus and other people. You can't be a stone in the wall of the temple by yourself. I'm afraid that some will become content being lonely stones trying to be a wall unto themselves or be a priest without a temple. And I worry that the physical separation will become a spiritual separation. And 
For those of you online, you really need to guard your heart. It's not your fault that you can't be with other Christians, all right? But this is a, it's a, we need to understand the peril of the times. And the peril of the times is not getting sick. It's losing our spiritual, real spiritual connection to other people. So if you're watching online every week, I want to encourage you to guard your heart against allowing the physical separation to become a spiritual separation and that you discipline yourself to remain connected to your brothers and sisters. The longer this goes on, the harder that's going to be. We need to guard our hearts. So what are some conclusions we can make? The current events of the last few months have a way of wearing you down, don't they? Just sort of like a dripping faucet, just dripping wearing you away, wearing down your emotional resolve, your resolve to stay connected to other people, your resolve to actually do anything or to care about anything. I call it outrage fatigue. I don't know if I coined that phrase or not. But there's been so much outrage for so long, and all of it at the same level. Like nobody's just a little outraged. It's constant like outrage at level 10, right? Turn it up to 11 for those of you who know that. Fun movie, all right. Spinal Tap, anyone? Raise your hand. All right, I got one, a couple of hands. All right. Some of you don't know what Spinal Tap, best movie ever made. All right, but anyway. All the outrage is turned up to 11 all the time. There's no sense of proportion, is there? And I'm not saying there's not things to be outraged, but at some point you sort of emotionally get worn out. These days have a way of relegating you to a quiet existence of survival and meaninglessness where every day goes by and feels pointless and meaningless and useless with no sense of purpose or direction or momentum to it. And there are voices shouting from all directions telling you who you are and what you must believe and what you must do, and none of those voices seem to agree. So Peter would say, I'll tell you who you are. <laughs> he would say, you're the church. That's who you are. Your unity is in his presence among you, not in your culture, your skin color, or your politics. Your significance is in his presence among you. You are God's dwelling place, his holy habitation. And your purpose is to be a priest of his presence, and you carry his presence into every tribe, nation, and tongue, calling more worshipers to take their place in his holy temple. That is who you are. The world will not be saved by outrage. Did you know that the church is the hope of the world? That's a bold thing to say. That's what Peter would say. You know, this is all the world needs is the church to act like the church. That's it. Another simple thing that's super hard to do. A lot of people are asking me, what do I do about racism? Which is kind of a, <laughs> like I know, right? <laughs> but 
People are asking that question. It's a good question. I'm not laughing because it's a bad question. It's just an enormous question. So I'll just tell you what I'm doing. On the simple theological basis of the fact that God calls us one church, I'm gathering with other pastors and just every week, and we're talking and reading and thinking and praying and worshiping God together. Acting like the church. Not acting like our corner of the temple is the only corner of the temple that matters or has any significance to God. But actually acting like the church is the church. So while we're standing out here, outside our four walls, everybody else is getting outside of their four walls, either literally or metaphorically. And I don't know what we'll come up with, but whatever it is, it's going to look like the church acting like the church. And I think all of us will go, oh, why didn't we do that like 100 years ago? This feels totally like what we're supposed to be doing all the time. God solved all of these things when Jesus rose from the dead. Every solution the world is looking for is in the resurrection. It's in Christ. Every single solution is in him. We don't need to invent anything new. We don't need anything new. We just need Jesus. I'll tell you what else you can do is you can invite the Holy Spirit to try your own heart to see if there is anything there that is contrary to God's definition of you and us. If you find some kind of tribalistic pride in your heart, then just repent of it and move toward God. If you find that you kind of feel like our church is better than everybody else's, you need to repent of that. Now, you can love our church more than everybody else's because this is the church you're a part of. That's totally fine. That's part of it. It's like I, I love my family in a special way. But thinking we're better or somehow a more prominent place in the wall is a sinful attitude. Then we look around and like Jesus, when he said everything could be summed up in the law and the prophets by just loving God with your whole self and loving your neighbor. And then the lawyer asked him, well, who's my neighbor? It's actually a pretty good question. I mean, I think he probably didn't mean it very authentically and genuinely. That's the implication, but it's a good question. And Jesus answered that by telling this parable of the Good Samaritan. So I'd encourage you to go read that parable and answer that question, who's my neighbor? Because he answers it in a simple yet very difficult way. And what he basically says is, be a priest, he condemns the person with the title priest for not loving his neighbor and not recognizing who his neighbor is. And then he calls out the most hated people group of the day and says, that's the true priest. It's controversial stuff if you actually do it. It really is. This is the church acting like the church. 
This is where my heart is right now, is to simply tell you who you are, to remind you of who you are. You are the church. You are the dwelling place of the presence of God. And you are priests of that presence to the world, to your family, to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your literal next-door neighbor and the neighbor in front of you on the street. That is who you are, and it is your significance and purpose. Amen? So I'd like to pray for us as I close. God, I ask you to drive us even further out. God, that we'll be willing to journey a far distance, maybe even just a cultural distance, but to journey a long distance to our neighbor. God, that we would recognize our neighbor when we see him. God, that we would not cross to the other side of the street. But God, I pray that you would help us to see that we are our significance and our unity and our purpose all are derived from one thing, and that is your presence among us. God, I pray that you would, God, if there's any pride in us, pride in our human legacy, pride in our history, pride in our blessings and, God, the things that would make us feel maybe a little superior to other churches. God, I pray that if there's any, even a, just a hint of it in any of our hearts, God, that you would show us and convict us of it. And God, we repent of that right now. And God, I pray in the coming season of this local church, Living Hope Church, God, that you would bind us. God, that you would bind us to this calling to simply be the church. God, protect us from fatigue and from listening to too many voices, listening to the wrong voices. God, getting frustrated and hopeless or getting isolated. God, I especially pray for those who are unable to be with us in, 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 in person um, each Sunday. God, that you would, the people online right now on the live stream, God, I pray that you would protect their hearts from a spiritual distancing God, it is hard not to be together. God, I pray that that would remain hard, that God, my, that we would not become comfortable being separated, but Lord, that you would maintain a spiritual discomfort over being physically separated. God, I pray your blessing right now that you would fill everyone watching online with your spirit, that they would feel vitally connected to your body right now. God, I pray that you would continue to mobilize this church to serve and to love and minister to, to be priests to the brokenhearted in this city. God, I pray your blessing on the food ministry, God, that you would stir up volunteers to serve and to love and to minister in that ministry right now. In the name of Jesus, amen.